If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Romans 14 this morning. We are at the end of this chapter. And you're going to hear me say this again, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this right now. that Most any time I prepare a sermon, of course, in, in, the, in the interest of being faithful, one of the first questions you have to ask yourself is, how does this apply in my life? How, how does this work its way out? How do I work this out in my own life? And so as you can imagine, uh, it often, as it's rolling around in my own head, it can be really convicting. This week, this particular paragraph is probably one of the most convicting sermons personally for me that I've prepared in quite a long time. Because as we start talking about conscience and preference and liberty, I can't tell you how many memories flood back into my mind where I was probably less than gracious on a matter of conscience and not a matter of, of objective truth. And perhaps you'll have this experience this morning while we're talking where we let secondary or tertiary things become the litmus test for, well, then you're not being faithful, right? Maybe you've never said that out loud to somebody, but I bet you've thought it. And so I'm just telling you this morning, I sat with this. I told Rachel earlier on in the week, this is probably one of the most convicting paragraphs I've dealt with in a while because the Lord used it in my own life to remind me how quick we are to take our own conscience, our own matters of preference and choice, and apply those to other people and make our opinion the litmus test for righteousness. So, beloved, I stand before you guilty, guilty as charged, done it. And maybe I've done it with some of you, and for that I sincerely apologize. But this, I hope this passage of Scripture will bite into you like it did to me, because I want you to hurt like I did. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. I'm not, I'm not being vindictive. Because it bit into me because the truth of God's Word made an impression on my soul and mind, and I wanted to do the same thing for you. So this morning, we find ourselves in the second half of Romans 14. We began to look at the first half about not passing judgment on each other, about not passing judgment over somebody eating meat or not eating meat or esteeming one day or, or not esteeming days, and looking into matters of conscience and preference and trying to hold our lives before the Word of God and ask God to inform the different decisions that we make, the different activities that we do and don't do. Don't, don't do. And so when we we look at the second half of Romans 14, which is 13 to 23, it's a continuation on this topic with a charge to not be a stumbling block to your brother and sister in one direction or another. And we really need to take this to heart because I think the, the question that we should be asking is, am I living my life to genuinely love the people around me, the people of God in my life, or am I trying to impose my understanding on other people whether it's biblically warranted or not. Now, hey, you hold the opinions that you hold because you think they're right. That's okay. We just have to be careful that matters of opinion don't become our test for genuine faith and faithfulness. But they so easily do. This is where we have to walk the line of being able to be convicted on something and understand that somebody else can be just as loved by Jesus and not share that conviction. 
it's important because there are a whole host of issues that we as Christians will divide over on, on, on just purely on matters of conscience. And so, without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Word of God itself, Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant Word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peaceful and for mutual, or for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word, and it, it compels us to think long and very deeply about our lives and interactions. Oh God, we need the conviction. We need the transformation. Help us to be people who are looking for opportunities to love rather than assert our rights. Use this to help us grow in You. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, it, it's easy for us when we start speaking of sacrifice to speak of it philosophically. It's easy for us to talk about it, right? We can read about it. We can talk about it. We can think about it. But it's a lot easier to talk about sacrifice than it is to actually sacrifice. When we get into the realm of actually having to lay our lives down, whether uh, symbolically, metaphorically, emotionally, psychologically, or physically, when we actually get into the area of actually having to do it, it becomes a much harder task. You know, I was just thinking this week of, of people who, who find themselves in a position to donate bone marrow or to donate maybe a kidney Perhaps someone they know is having, having kidney failure and they become, they realize they're a match and so they decide, I'm going to give a kidney for this friend, for this brother, for this sister, whomever, whomever it is in their lives. One of the things that we would not assume, or at least I would not assume, is that they're motivated purely by duty, right? When they begin to make this sacrifice of giving bone marrow or perhaps a kidney, or, or, or some other means of help, we would be right in almost every case to assume they are obli or they're obliged to do this not out of duty, but out of love. 
right? They're, they're, they're sacrificing something purely from a motivation of love. I love this person. I want to see them well. I'm willing to give something of myself for that to happen. And when we see this, it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling to see people do that, to, to, to lay down their lives in a manner of speaking for the good, for the health, for the grace of another. And beloved, we're, we're right when we see that it's not duty that compels that type of sacrifice. It is, in fact, love, a deep love, a real love, a sincere love. We can't check every motivation of a human heart. Is it possible that there's some motivation for glory in there? Sure, we have, to, we have to be open to that. But generally speaking, that type of sacrifice comes as a fruit or ripple effect of love that we feel for somebody else. Now, there are much less invasive ways to serve and love, but when we serve, when in, in the community of Christ we are serving our brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is something that Paul is getting at here is it has to be motivated by love. That has to be our motivation, not making someone see that they're wrong, not making someone see that we're right, not making someone get with it, but sincerely out of love. Could love be helping someone see their error? You bet. Could love be helping someone see they need to get with it? You bet. But the goal is to love, and the ripple effect of love should be other, other, other opportunities for transformation in their lives. When we come to the second paragraph of Romans 14, it is actually very, very easy and simple to understand. It, you, don't, you don't need a theological degree to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. He says that when it's between personal rights and opportunities to love, we should choose opportunities to love. Now, maybe this is unique to America, that becomes a hard pill to swallow sometimes. It has for me. There have been times where I've had opportunities to love or assert rights, and I've asserted rights because, by golly, that's my right. You can't infringe on my rights. Paul says, actually, brother, the body of Christ can to some degree. And in fact, we should invite the infringement on personal rights simply for opportunities to love people well. Beloved, I want to go ahead and say this now. Here's what Brad is not saying. Brad is not saying be a doormat to people in your lives. Brad is not saying have no convictions. Brad is not saying there is never a time for you to stand firm in something, a conviction that you believe in. Do not be a doormat. Have convictions. Stand firm in those convictions. But pray for the wisdom and discernment to know when is a great opportunity to say, I can lay these aside right now because that's not what's at stake here. What's at stake here is maybe an opportunity to love somebody that I can help bring along just a little bit further. And not to be just like me, but to love them because I'm loved by Christ. Beloved, when we start looking at the church, we have to be looking for those opportunities. Paul is not, I repeat, Paul is not criticizing personal rights or those with less tender consciences. Paul is not criticizing personal rights or those with less tender consciences. What Paul is doing is he's talking about the reality of living in community with people who have different convictions. Different convictions. 
about all manner of, of different things in the scope of what is, is biblical. And this gives us, these different convictions gives us opportunities to love, opportunities to choose to love people well. Because at the end of the day, I said this last time, your opinion is, well, your opinion. You may be right. And somebody may need to see the error of their ways. But I guess this is where we have to keep conversations. We have to keep community. We have to keep interactions in a certain perspective and point of view. And recognize that often there's a story behind that conviction. Maybe the more loving thing is get to the story so we can understand. The well-being of our brothers and sisters... (laughs) The well-being of our brothers and sisters is way more important in a moment than personal rights. I'm just going to confess to you. That's hard for me to say. I am, tip, I am just by nature, I was a rebellious child growing up. If my mother said it's blue, I'd say it's red. If my dad said, no, you turn right up here, I said, actually, you turn left. And even if it got me lost, I would figure there was another way around it. That's just, that was my personality. It still kind of is, actually. When people start to kind of force a structure on me, my nonconformity starts going, oh, no, like that. Just being real, just being real. Um, but they're, they're, when it comes to brothers and sisters in community, their well-being is way more important than how we feel in a moment or our personal rights. And again, this is not an injunction against personal rights. This is not an injunction against strong faith. What this is, actually at the end of the day, is a call to loving discretion. That beautiful wisdom word, discretion, we often think about it in the way people dress, well, they're not, or, or the way they convey information. But what really Paul is challenging us to do is to look at a situation in front of us with discretion and say, is this really a time to argue? Is this really a time to assert rights? Or might this be an opportunity to let my rights take a back seat and love this man or woman, this brother or sister, this friend in front of me. I think that calls for discretion. I think it calls for discernment. I think it calls for wisdom. This can be a complex issue or topic because of what surrounds it, the topics that surround it. So when we start getting into matters of opinion, I'll address this in a little bit, about, you know, how do we educate our kids, or, or what movies do we let our families watch, or, or what holidays do we do we not, or do we celebrate or not celebrate, and, and so forth. And so what music do we allow our families, or do we personally listen to? Uh, it's endless. It, it's endless. And so when we start getting into this, it does become complex because how you apply Romans and the Bible to these certain situations is most likely going to be different than how I do it. There are certain cases of clear-cut right and wrong, just ethical norms that we have to observe. And yet there's a whole host of places where the ethical, the black and white ethics, there's a whole sea of gray in between there of any point of a spectrum that we could fall on. And so we have to recognize that people are going to have different convictions When we look at Paul, at times he asserts his rights. There are times he asserts his rights, especially as a Roman citizen, and declares, I want this. And then there are times where he goes out of his way not to offend brothers, to do something 
to have maybe have Timothy circumcised for an opportunity to love and speak and preach well. Wasn't necessary. They were free from that, but they set it aside for a moment to look at a situation and think, what might be a way to love and advance the gospel here? I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we live in a time we were watching the world crumble around us. We are watching, I, I get sick of it on Twitter, watching Chris, uh, Christians play academic battleship trying to one-up each other, and I'm thinking, what point do we say, enough? Let's look for ways to love and, and encourage and, and support and challenge when we need to challenge, when it's really necessary, instead of these opportunities to try to play one-upmanship. I got fiery mad looking at this whole Twitter. I'm not, well, you know what, that doesn't matter. It, it, it was a guy trying to argue for a definition of baptism that was the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life, going out of his way to justify a certain type of thing. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Love has to be the goal in relating within Christian community. And this love is going to require wisdom. I mean, again, I'm going to point to Jesus here instead of Paul this time. Jesus was silent in the face of his accusers and captors. Didn't say a word. He let them accuse. He let them uh, brutally beat and brutally attack him. And yet, in the temple... Jesus fashions a whip and drives them out preaching at them about you are a den of robbers and thieves. What is the difference? The moment, the opportunity, the way in which you're looking at how this is going to ripple effect out. Jesus was God, so he knew perfectly we are not God, so we know imperfectly, which is exactly why I'm telling you and me, me primarily, this is, these are opportunities for loving discretion, discernment prayer, wisdom. When is it best to press in? When is it best to step back? So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's this, that our obligation to love is more important than our rights. That our obligation to love is more important than our rights. When we come to this text, there are two kind of ideas put before us. What will it mean to love? What does it mean to love? And what does it mean to call stumbling? What does it mean to be a stumbling block in front of somebody else? Now, again, I want to give another caveat. Here's what I'm not saying. Sometimes a, a debate may have to happen. Sometimes we, we may have to do that. And that's okay. Because that can be a loving response. So, again, I'm not saying that we can't push back ever. I'm just saying we need to be very wise when we do it. When we think about love, the love of Christ that work in us, love compels us toward a sacrificial service, and away from condemning people. Our first thought about people, even people in error, should not be condemnation. Even people in error, while they draw a breath, since we do not know the will of God, are still potentially able to be convinced of truth. But we certainly shouldn't feel that way from people and think in terms of judgmentalness or condemnation against people who merely have a different opinion than us on a topic that has a spectrum of possible opinions. Paul is still talking about the conscience here in Romans chapter 14 when he says, when we think about the Christian community, the goal, the goal of Christian community is to help and not hinder. It's the whole goal of our community is to help and not hinder. 
to, to welcome problems in, to understand that sometimes we are the problem, to understand that your opinion and my opinion may not always see eye to eye, but there is a larger goal that we're to shoot for, and that's loving unity. Not unity at all costs, unity under the headship of Christ. Paul opens up this paragraph, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Look, he, he assumes it's happening. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. I, it, I know that it happens, but don't do that anymore. Rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Uh, I've said this before. This really functions kind of like a thesis statement within this particular paragraph. So don't judge people. I mean, it really is that simple. Don't be judgmental. But there's a beautiful play on words here that it gets lost in the English because they translate it out to make it make more sense. But literally, if you were to read this in the Greek text, therefore, let us not pass judgment on, on one another any longer, but rather judge never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So literally, Paul uses the same word to not condemn, but to use your mind and your heart influenced by the Spirit to judge what will help others and not hurt so the judgment that we're trying to make here is what, what best will help and serve and love as opposed to condemn. Because look, it's easy to condemn people. And if you've lived long enough, you know what I'm saying is right. It's easy to look at somebody. And maybe you, we don't think, well, I just want them to suffer torment. If you do, you got problems. And you should probably come see me when I get off sabbatical. If you I'll let that one sink in a little bit. It's easy to condemn because when something doesn't align with me, I'm already become, you know, Descartes and those philosophers, man is the measure of all things. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. If I become the measure of all things and things don't align with me, it's easy for me to look down on you. You don't align with me. We four shut the door no more. And if you're not a part of we four, then you've got problems. Beloved, we have to break that. We have to break that. We have, the Spirit has to break that in us because it's not right. It's not in keeping with Christian community. See, it's much easier to do that than it is to sacrificially love. And I'll tell you why. It's because so often we look at people and we think they're not worth it. They don't deserve it. And you know what? They don't. I don't. You don't. We don't. Christ died for us when we were yet his enemy. And he calls us to lay things aside in a moment for the sake of loving someone well. If you've been married for any amount of time, how often have you harbored anger in your heart toward your spouse and then been presented with an opportunity? I can stay angry. We can even condemn each other. Or we can choose to love each other and lay our knives and daggers down. It's certainly been true of Rachel and me. Perhaps it's true of you. So you understand the concept that at some point, yeah, we can condemn each other, and we can let that grow like a cancer, or we can put it to death in Christ and say loving community is much more worth it than that. And God willing, we all come to that space with one another in our marriages and alike. It's easy to condemn the natural response in most any situation is for us to assert our rights. <laughs> and sometimes we have to. Sometimes we have to. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's important that we do it. 
again, we need to know through prayer, the Lord should make that very clear to us. There are times where I'm thankful the apostles stood for truth. They didn't just assert their personal rights. They were asserting what was right, and we have to. Beloved, within Christian community, we need to ask ourselves when those opportunities are and how do we take them in a loving, gracious, and kind way because we don't want to put a stumbling block in front of our brothers and sisters. Paul continues, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. I love this. What does he know? What is he persuaded? It's not his own opinion. He's not asserting his opinion here. He's saying, in the Lord, I know this in the Lord. So this thing that he's about to say is absolutely true, that there's nothing unclean in and of itself. There's, there's no such thing as unclean food anymore. So when we start talking about this, especially in this context, he's talking about eating, that this is not a matter of right and wrong per se. This is a matter of conscience. This is a matter of what you feel convicted in your heart that you can or cannot do. And so this is where we do, again, we have to choose care in how we communicate. This becomes a matter of conscience for another person. And what Paul says here is whether or not it's right or wrong is one issue. A secondary issue is if, it's, if you're convinced in your own mind or heart this thing is wrong, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. So the person then who says, I'm convinced in my mind and heart that I don't even want to look at a bottle of liquor. I don't even want to see a bottle of liquor because I know where it's going to lead. Whether you enjoy liquor or not, you look at that and we have to respect that this is where this brother or sister has landed. That's where they are. That doesn't mean liquor is inherently bad, although it has tons of bad fruit if you overindulge. But for that person, they're telling you, I can't do this. In my conscience and in my heart, this is where I live. And we respect that. We don't try to dissuade them. Because I, I've, I've seen it. Someone try to tell somebody, well, but you know that alcohol is still a, can be a good gift from God if it's used properly. That's another time. Beloved, if someone is telling us their conscience bound on this, we just need to respect it. Just need to respect that that's where they are. And not take it personally. If you're a person who enjoys to have a glass of wine or to have a beer or, or to have a drink with your dinner or however it, it goes, they're not attacking you personally. So don't take it that way. Just take it as they don't do this thing. Now here, I want to say one thing. If you also don't drink alcohol but you see someone doing it, it's not, you're not free to condemn them either. I mean, man, if they're stumbling drunk, yeah, we got a problem. We should, we should say something. But we can't take our personal convictions and put them on other people. Paul continues here, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And he builds on this, so do not, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Verse 16 Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're ramping up to this. So when we, what you take from this is your personal rights are not more important than your brothers and sisters, right? That's what, that's what, so if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. So if, if a brother or sister, if we are doing something that is grieving them, and, and, our, and, our, and our first response is to say, well, 
I'm free to do this. Paul would say, you are. But if by doing it and doing it in front of a brother that's being grieved, you should stop. Because at that moment, whatever you're free to do is not more important than this one who's getting grieved, who's getting his heart broken, who's getting hurt by your actions. Beloved, he calls it destroying. That is, that is, an, that is a big word. What does he really mean? He's not talking about literally destroying a person, but causing a crisis of faith that is completely unnecessary. We don't have to do it. When we look at this, Paul is telling us Christ died for them, just like he died for you. And they are much more valuable than your choices for personal rights in a moment. Again, I find this supremely convicting because Paul also says, when he says, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, again, your strong faith, having a less tender conscience, isn't bad. How could what we call good be spoken of as evil? When we take our notions of what is good for us in a moment in conscious situations and we try to apply it to other people with zero compassion. Beloved, when our choices force, compel people to see us as people without compassion, we need to take note of that. We should risk from time to time being taken advantage of a little personal effrontery or even some criticism because we're trying to be compassionate. Compassion is much more important in a moment because compassion is a form of love. And compassion says, you as a person are more important than this thing I could or could not choose. The kingdom, Paul says here, is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's bigger. It's bigger than food and drink. And I love how he does this. Not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. And I love this little prepositional phrase. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. Should not be lost on us that he takes these fruits of the Spirit and he talks about this, this is the work of the kingdom, to produce righteousness, to produce peace, to produce joy. Righteousness is a personal thing that we get from Christ, to be made right with God, to be in right standing. The peace and joy are the outworking of righteousness. And so what we're really aiming at is being people who are righteous in Christ, promoting and living out peace and joy in our lives, and seeking to see that in other people's lives. That's the goal. The kingdom, he says, is bigger. These appetites that we have, they can't compare with the eternal gifts that we have in Christ. It's just too easy to argue over what we do or don't do. You know, there are so many things. We don't watch R-rated movies because they're bad. We are fine with R-rated movies insofar as it's not promoting something illicit. We don't listen to certain types of music. We are fine to listen to music. We don't, we don't practice anything at Halloween. We're going to go trick-or-treating. We don't celebrate Christmas because of historical, some possible historical implications. We have the full nine yards in our house. 
We don't do public education because it's an evil arm of the state. We do public education because this is what we've decided to do with our kids. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And so often, we will find ourselves in particular places where we're on the opposite end of somebody. You know, hey, I can't believe you'd celebrate Halloween. It's the devil's holiday. And you're thinking, well, I mean, man, we just dress up like angels and go to our neighbor's house and get some candy. That's not a big deal. But people get incensed over it. I can't believe you would send your children to public school. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that's the devil's playground? Man, public education is messed up. It is. I'm, I'm not lying. It's bad. God bless you teachers who endure it. But beloved of God, at the end of the day, you can't look at a brother and sister and place them someplace outside of orthodoxy because that's the choice they've made and you've not made it. Just like our public education friends can't look at homeschoolers and think, what a bunch of losers, man. They just know nothing. I can't tell you how many times in my life with homeschool kids we would be at family things and somebody would go, well, I know your kids are homeschooled. And I'm like, well, they don't live in a box. They actually have lives. You know, we play soccer and everything. Um, and let's see, we played soccer. We, we played soccer, I guess. <laughs> oh, we did play flag football. Uh, I did, we did play flag football when we were in Keystone, and I was the coach. And I may or may not have seriously sprained my ankle celebrating on the sideline in a game that we weren't supposed to be keeping score. The kids knew they would have said, hey, coach, what's the score? would be like, it's 36 to 8. And we won. We, we did really. Anyway. Anyway. It was upward, too. I was, uh, and they knew I was the pastor in the town, and I was the most competitive guy out there. I remember looking at our boys at our team one time, and I said, hey, do you want to have fun or do you want to win? And then I was like, well, because winning is fun. Um, and... Um, so anyway, sorry, I digress. But we, we get on these kicks, and we try to take these things that are, that are purely a, a, an opportunity for families to make decisions, and then we apply our reasoning to other families. If you're in this room and you watch movies that I don't watch, God bless you. I hope you're keeping that before the Lord. If you're in this room and I listen to music that you don't listen to, I'm trying to keep it before the Lord. If you're in this room and you partake in alcohol or you don't, let us just pray for one another that we would do it as unto the Lord. If you're sending your children to public school or you're homeschooling or some version or some mixture of the two, God bless you, man. There are so many pitfalls that we are navigating. Let's pray for each other. Let's ask each other how it's going. How can we serve each other? These are just opportunities for us to look at people who bring a different perspective to life and to family and to the church of God and say, how can we come together and love each other well. Because, beloved, the most crafty division that Satan creates is right here. Because it's simple, it's easy, and it feels right to me. I'm not going to associate with you people. My gosh, do you? Right? It just, and it feels natural. It just kind of feels natural, like, well, you guys are a little too politically right, or you guys are a little too politically left, or you guys are not right enough, you're not, I mean, whatever. We just do it. We split off into tribes. And can we just kind of lay our daggers down a little bit and say, hey, I don't know everybody in this room as well as I'd like, but man, 
I want to believe that you're putting your life before the Lord and asking what is going to be best for your family and most glorifying to him, and we can just accept that. And in areas where it needs to be challenged, let us humbly challenge. But you see, it comes down to this idea that when Paul says in verse 19, and I'll come back to verse 18 in a second, that's an important verse, but so then let us pursue what makes for peaceful, for, dang, why don't I keep doing that? What makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What are we pursuing that is edifying and seeking for peace? Because here's the thing. These crises of conscience that lead us away from each other, beloved, they lead away from upbuilding. They lead away from peace. Don't let trivial things, don't let trivial things become a hindrance to real fellowship and community. Because we are called to edify, to be peace-filled and peaceful. We can sincerely disagree on a host of things and be faithful to Jesus. Sincerely. I mean, sincerely disagree on a whole host of things and be faithful to Jesus. And that's the beauty of community. Paul says, whoever thus serves Christ, verse 18, I'm going back one, is acceptable to God and approved by men. Thus serves Christ. What does he mean by that? That remembering that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. And whoever thus is serving to promote peace and righteousness and joy is approved or is acceptable to God and approved by Christ. When you start looking at this, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Oh, beloved, when it comes to this, I love this, in mixed company, what is he saying? As a general rule, in mixed company, and by mixed company, I don't mean men and women. I mean strong and weak faith. We should take a very conservative approach to life. In other words, we should risk abstaining from things that we might normally indulge for the sake of a good testimony and for love of our brothers and sisters. This is probably the one that convicted me the most, if I'm just being completely transparent. Is hey, how many times have I taken the opportunity to display my freedom when at the end of the day it probably didn't have the effect that I wanted it to? And so I stand convicted and have asked the Lord to forgive me in these moments for this because it's not worth risking disdaining a fellow believer over something that in the grand scheme of eternity has no major bearing on my life. And may we be convicted by that. We do have, uh, Paul is talking about faith here. When he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, work of God is faith and the same. He's using those interchangeably. Indeed, again, he says that everything is clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So when we start looking at this last paragraph, and then he builds on that, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, be discreet and mix company. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by, for what he approves. 
be wise. Keep, keep what you approve submitted to the lordship of Christ. What is it that brings glory to God? But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul wraps us up by this. Faith or this freedom of conscience before God, we do need to keep. We, we, need, to, we need to keep our consciences before God, and we need to let our consciences be bound by God and not by another, by the truth of God and not by another. Because we will stand before God. We are, Paul is driving at the same thing. We are accountable to God alone. We will be judged on the merit of Christ at the end of all things, not by what we approved or disapproved. The merit of Christ. Now, again, my caveat, how we live our lives is important. The decisions that we make, the things we indulge need to be under the lordship of Christ. But there is wiggle room in gray areas. Because at the end of the day, your conscience and my conscience is not what makes us righteous. Jesus does that. And so your conscience, don't violate it. That's what Paul says here. Don't go against your conscience because if you're going against your conscience under the pressure of someone else or because you think maybe I can, beloved, it's sin because you're acting outside of the bounds of faith. You're not acting in good faith at that point. You're acting in bad faith, and it's wrong pressuring a weaker brother or sister to see your view and indulge it is wrong. Making someone try to fit your mold is wrong. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ, or he tells us to be imitators of Christ. Our imitation can be of saints who have preceded us that we admire insofar as they were living for Christ. But Christ needs to be the goal. When we think about this particular situation, the way that it shakes out, love is always the better choice. Love is not, or I should say it this way, let's put it in the positive. Love is always convenient if it doesn't cost us anything. It's convenient. It's easy. The Bible, however, doesn't allow us to exercise a love that is never costly or that is always easy. In fact, any love we exercise is going to cost. It's going to be tough. Because love means sacrifice. It's always not a matter of if it will cost. It's a matter of how much. How much will it cost? To really love, it's going to cost. Love led Jesus to the cross. Love has rescued an innumerable host from sin and death. In fact, the book of Revelation calls it a great multitude. No man can number. So in matters of opinion and conscience, to borrow a phrase that has become very culture, uh, very popular in our culture, love should win. In matters of opinion and conscience, love should win. As Paul so clearly stated, at the end of the day, we are obliged to love our brothers and sisters above all else. We're called to love because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we might be rescued and redeemed and that we might love. Jesus has given us the example to follow. So brothers and sisters, when it comes to these things, let us lay aside our daggers. Let us lay aside all the things that we hang our hat on and recognize that we are called to be lovers of God and lovers of one another. It's going to cost, but it's worth it. Please pray with me.
Father, thank you for this word. It's powerful. It's convicting. It's been convicting to me. And I sincerely, with my brothers and sisters present, pray for your grace to walk in freedom, but also to walk in love. God, to lay down rights that need to be laid down, to not use opinions as the litmus test for righteousness, but to understand fundamentally that we are blood-bought by Christ. We are renewed by Christ. We are transformed into the image of Christ. And so I pray that we would love like Christ. Thank you, we pray in his name. Amen.